Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 is where we are headed this morning as we continue our way through these various stories at the table in the Gospel of Luke. At the table, Luke 19. Um, as many of you know, as you're turning there, I love Lord of the Rings, right? Um, I love the books. I love the movies. I love the epic story and, and, and power of it all. It's amazing. And so as I was preparing for this morning, a particularly memorable meal scene came to my mind uh, from not the Lord of the Rings, actually, but the, the sort of playful prequel story, The Hobbit, right? Uh, and in this story, it begins with Bilbo Baggins. He is this quiet, comfortable hobbit, right? Living a quiet, comfortable life. When one day, he meets a wizard named Gandalf, who comes across his path. And Gandalf makes mention of an adventure that he's looking for people to join him on. And Bilbo is not interested in an adventure. He is much more interested in his comfortable, quiet life. Uh, but later that evening, as he sits down for his quiet and comfortable dinner, this happens. Take a look. Wallet. That's your service. Hmm. Uh, Bilbo. Baggins. Yours. Do we know each other? No. Which wheel, laddie? Is it down here? It, it is what down where? Supper. He said there'd be food. And lots of it. He, he said. Who said? Very goodness. Any more? What? Mm. Uh, oh, uh, yes, yes. Ah. Help yourself. Mm. It's just that, um, that I wasn't expecting company. That'll be the door. Balin, at your service. Good evening. Yes, yes, it is. Though I think it might rain later. Hmm? Am I late? Late for what? Oh! Ha -ha! Evening, brother. <laughs> oh, by my beard. You are shorter and wider than last we met. Wider, not shorter. Sharp enough for both of us. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Sorry, I hate to interrupt. Uh, but the thing is, I'm not entirely sure you're in the right house. Have you eaten? It's not that I don't like visitors. I, I like visitors as much as the next hobbit. But I do like to know them before they come visiting. Hmm? 
What's this? I don't know. I think it's supposed to be cheese. The thing is, gone blue. Um, it's riddled with mold. The thing is, I don't, I don't know either of you. Not in the slightest. I don't mean to be blunt, but I, uh, but I had to speak my mind. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Apology accepted. Oh, now fill it up, brother. Don't stint. I could eat again if you insist. Feely. And Keely. At, At your service. service. You must be Mr. Boggins. No, you can't come in. You've come to the wrong house. What? Has it been cancelled? No one told us. Can no, nothing's been cancelled. That's a relief. Careful with these. I just had them sharpened. It's nice, this place. Did you do it yourself? Well, uh, no, it's been in the family for years. That's my mother's glory box. Can you please not do that? Keely. Keely, come on. Give us a hand. Mr. Dwellin. <laughs> Let's shove this in the hole, otherwise we'll never get everyone in. Hey, everyone? How many more are there? Where do you want this? Oh, no. No, no, there's nobody home! Go away and bother somebody else. There's far too many dwarves in my dining room as it is. If, if this is some clotted's idea of a joke, <laughs> I can only say it is in very poor taste. Gandalf. All right, so. That scene from The Hobbit, right? The title of the chapter where this happens in the book is An Unexpected Party. And unexpected, it truly was, right? Uh, as the scene continues on, all of these dwarves file in, start, you know, one, another one, a couple of them, and then a whole pile just falls on into his home. And they make themselves at home. As they come in, they gather around the table, and by the end of the scene, that pantry that you saw that was so full of food has been nearly completely emptied. And Bilbo does, after all of this, end up heading out on this adventure, this life-changing adventure, right? And it all starts with this chaotic and unexpected meal. And so in our text today, we're going to read a story, not of a hobbit, but of another small, quiet, comfortable man who ends up with unexpected company and whose life is transformed by it. So let's read together. Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 
Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the unexpected moments when we get to see you and encounter you, even if they feel like interruptions sometimes. God, I pray that as we consider your word together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we have yet another table story, meal story in the Gospel of Luke. Now, like the story of Mary and Martha that we looked at a few weeks ago, the meal is not explicitly mentioned in the story, but Jesus' phrase, I must stay at your house today, certainly implies dinner and lodging, at least. And so it is a story of hospitality. It is a story of welcoming, and, and most certainly it includes a table and lives transformed. So let's walk back through this passage and reflect together. The passage begins in verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, this is significant right? Jericho is the city that he's coming upon. Now, the span of centuries and the, and the passing hands from one kingdom or empire to another certainly brings a lot of changes to any city, but this is more or less the same Jericho that we read about in the Old Testament. And what is Jericho most known for? It's known for those great walls that came tumbling down, right? That's the story of Jericho. When Joshua was leading Israel into the promised land, the walls of Jericho were a barrier that they came upon, and it stopped them in their tracks. And so, as the song says, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. So the story begins with Jesus, who, by the way, his name in Hebrew is Yeshua, this is another Joshua coming to Jericho, all right? Jesus, Yeshua, coming upon Jericho. It is another story about breaking down barriers. But Jesus does not break down walls by fighting a battle. Jesus breaks down walls by going to dinner. That's how he breaks down walls. Jesus turns dividing walls into a community table. This is what Jesus does. And this reminds me, as I was thinking about this, of someone that Caitlin and I got to know a few years ago, uh, a friend named Emily. 
Uh, we got to know her right in the middle of some pretty great political divisions in our country, a lot of tension between people. Uh, many will remember the campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, and all of the things that came along with that whole season. But during that time, this friend of ours began sort of her own kind of campaign. Uh, and, and it was called Make America Dinner Again. The goal was to reach out to people with different, sometimes very opposing viewpoints and bring them together around a meal to listen to one another, talk to one another, and get to know each other. That instead of fighting and arguing with each other, to learn how to listen and love each other at the table. And a few years ago, when this was going on, she did an interview on the news. And so here's a clip of her describing what this was like. So Make America Dinner Again is something um, that we're hoping will bring people of different viewpoints together, right? Yes, So exactly. where are you doing this and how are you putting it together? So basically it's potluck style and people apply online. So we choose about eight to 10 participants per meal. And they're from a very diverse background. So we have different socioeconomic backgrounds mm -hmm. involved. So you we have curate Republicans. the group, right? We have Democrats. Yes, <laughs> we curate the group. Um, we choose people specifically that are different from each other in, in several different ways. It can be really difficult to put yourself out there and opinions can be um, hurtful to other people. So we have a curriculum that kind of sets a guideline mm -hmm. and a standard for what it means to actively listen to somebody um, because I believe that's a lost art. And I believe that it is an art, that it takes skills to actively listen to somebody. And that means that you're not thinking about your response next. You're thinking about the words coming out of somebody else's mouth. There's a lot of vulnerability involved. So people are vulnerable from the start. Even just a human interaction like this creates vulnerability that a screen over Facebook or Twitter will never ever have. So it's really important that people um, are face-to-face, -face, and food actually is a huge component. Why does that help? It, well, it makes me feel better that there's a, a bowl of croissants right? there. <laughs> no, Why it, is it that sharing a meal, because that seems to be something even internationally that yes. helps people, why, why does that make such a difference? I mean, it means so much. Breaking bread over our differences in 2018, it really is an act of ancient renewal. This is nothing new. This isn't anything um, revolutionary, really. It's just a call back to the table, to bring the table back in a central view and to use it as a resource that it can yeah. be for us. And take the screen out of the middle. Yes, and we've been doing it for centuries. I mean, every time um, there's a powerful discussion that needs to be had, we come to the table mm -hmm. because three times a day you eat a meal and that's what makes you human. It's very humanizing. So that's just a clip of what she is sharing about this experience that, that she helped to facilitate in the Seattle area. Um, and she goes on to share more specifically about some of the experiences that happened around tables uh, as people learned to listen to each other. But, but I just love how she describes that the table is a natural place of vulnerability. It's naturally a place for human connection, right? She says, what's more human than eating food, right? We all do this. And so it's, it's a place to remember that, that we are humans together. The table is a place where enemies 
can be transformed into friends. This is how the kingdom of God grows, right? Not megaphones and, uh, you know, passing out tracks and stuff like that, uh, but rather meals at the table. This is how the kingdom of God grows. This is what Jesus did as he came eating and drinking. He comes into Jericho, right? This, this new Joshua breaking down walls all over again. And what are the walls that Jesus comes breaking down? Well, we see this in verse 2. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Now, we've already seen that Luke is a very thoughtful storyteller. The way that he tells the story of Jesus, and even the order that he tells these stories, is often very intentional. And so as he introduces Zacchaeus, there are two words that begin to ring bells if we've been following Luke's story. If we back up to verse 18 of the previous chapter, we see another interaction that Jesus has with another man. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the two of them go on to talk about some of the laws, the, some of the Ten Commandments, and so on and so forth. But then in verse 22, Jesus says, You lack one thing. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And then verse 23, When the ruler heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. So Jesus looks at him and he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I love Jesus' colorful imagery and metaphors. But this is a story in, in just the previous chapter, right? So in chapter 18, we come upon a ruler who is wealthy, who encounters Jesus, but ends up going away sad. Indeed, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. But then in chapter 19, we meet Zacchaeus, who is described this way, a chief tax collector who is wealthy. A chief tax collector who is wealthy. Now, the word chief has the same root as the word ruler back in chapter 18. So another way of saying this would be that Zacchaeus is a ruling tax collector. He is a ruler of tax collectors. Uh, perhaps he's a manager or a supervisor. I, I don't know exactly how it all worked out, but it's the same word as that ruler that we saw before. He's a ruling tax collector and he is wealthy, right? Described the exact same way that ruler was described. So do you see what Luke is, is doing here? Holding these stories right next to each other. In chapter 18, a wealthy ruler comes to Jesus but goes away sad. Here we have another wealthy ruler of sorts who's about to encounter Jesus. And the assumption is that he's probably not going to want anything to do with Jesus. 
right? When, when Joshua came, Jericho had a barrier of walls around it. So Jesus is coming, and Zacchaeus has a barrier of wealth around him. Remember? It, it, it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. We expect Zacchaeus to wander away sad, just like that other wealthy ruler before. Like Bilbo Baggins, right? He's comfortable. He has no reason to be bothered with any kind of an adventure. But Jesus has come to break down barriers. Jesus has come to break through these things. And you see, Zacchaeus is interested in Jesus. He, he does have a bit of adventure in him. There's just one problem. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. See, Zacchaeus does want to see Jesus, but the crowd is in the way. So in verse 4, he runs ahead, climbs up a sycamore fig tree so he can see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, now there's a couple of things I'd like to say about this part of the story. The first one is, is simply a question for us to ponder. What are the things that keep us from seeing Jesus? What are the things that get in the way of us seeing Jesus, seeing the activity of God, the kingdom of God, in the world. Perhaps, like the rich ruler in the previous chapter, it is our comforts and our wealth. Like Bilbo, we don't want to be bothered. We're much too happy with our comfortable lives. And I'll admit, this challenges me. I mean, I'd much rather have a cozy, peaceful dinner than a pile of dwarves falling through my front door, right? But what are the things that keep you from seeing Jesus? Things that, that distract us from the kingdom of God. I mean, maybe it's a grudge, that turns into bitterness, that leads to a life tinged with anger. Maybe it's disappointment that's turned into just a kind of numbing from everything. And so life becomes cynical. What's the point? Maybe it's some expectations that you've always carried around with you that have turned into a kind of fear. And so life becomes filled with anxiety. Maybe it's some moment of success that has taken root and turned into pride. And so all of life becomes focused on the self. There are all kinds of things that can get in the way of seeing Jesus. What is that thing for you? What is that thing for us? And how badly do we want to see him? How badly do we want to see Jesus? 
I mean, what, what would it look like for us to sort of climb up our own figurative sycamore tree so we can see him? Right. What would it look like to, to change our posture in some way, to change the way that we live our lives in some way so that we might be able to see Jesus? Are there things that, that maybe we need to let go of? Maybe there are things we actually need to hold on to. What does it look like to position ourselves and our lives so we can clear away things that get in the way, so we can see Jesus. What would that look like? What are the things that get in the way? For Zacchaeus, that thing in the way was the crowd. It was the crowd of people. This leads me to another thing I just want to reflect on for a moment. You see, he desperately wanted to see Jesus, but the crowd was in the way. The people were in the way. Now, you know, maybe he could have shouted out and said, hey, move, let me see. But, you know, we, we learn later that this crowd doesn't much like him, right? In verse 7, they begin grumbling and muttering to themselves, oh, this is a sinner. Why would, why would he go and, and visit this guy, right? I mean, he's a tax collector. We've talked about this together before. Tax collectors were not well thought of right? Not just because they're the ones who take your money, but they're the ones who are working for the empire, right? The enemy, right? We don't like tax collectors. You know, so Zacchaeus was not well thought of. If he had said, hey, can you move out of the way? I'd like to see this guy. No one would have paid any attention to him. The thing that was in the way for him was the crowd. And so he left the crowd and went up into a tree because he wanted to see Jesus. Now, you see, I think there's a lot of Zacchaeuses today. I think there's a lot of people today like Zacchaeus. You see, I, I read a lot of articles and have heard a lot of stories about people leaving the church. I've read a lot of stories about pastors leaving the church. Just a couple weeks ago, there was a, an article from a pastor in Seattle saying, ministry has brought me to my breaking point. You know, just everything is chaos, especially over the past couple of years, right? And, and this is true for so many people. And, and we, we read about this, we can, we can look at statistics, we can, you know, see the churches dwindling and all that kind of thing and become really discouraged, but you see, I think for a lot of people, the church actually was what was keeping them from seeing Jesus. Because they experienced church as a place of judgment. They experienced church as a place where they had to act a certain way or do certain things. It was anything but a place where they were loved or known. And so they couldn't see Jesus. The crowd was in the way, so they've left and gone looking for Jesus elsewhere. And that's, I think there are a lot of people who are still truly looking for God, are still truly looking for Jesus. They've just given up on the church. They've given up on the crowd because if they did speak out, if they did say something, they were shooed away. 
And so I, I want us, I just want to encourage us as, as we reflect on this, who, who are the Zacchaeuses today who've left the crowd, but they're still searching for Jesus? They're still hungry for something. It could be easy for us to, I mean, it's Sunday morning and here we are at church, right? It could be easy for us to think, man, they're really, they're really missing it, you know, and just begin to judge them, even if slightly, just to judge. But Jesus does not judge those who have gone to strange places, gone to, to lonely places searching for him. Jesus welcomes the ones who truly search for him. Remember, he is the one who leaves the 99 to find the one. That's a story Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke just a few chapters before this story. In Luke 15, who are the Zacchaeuses today? Are, are there ways that maybe we as the church, maybe not this church specifically, but maybe, have at times not been welcoming? That maybe we've gotten in the way for some people. And how can we be a community that notices those who are asking for help? Who notices those who, who need to be seen, desperately need to be seen, but are lost in the crowd? They want to see Jesus, but they can't. Because the crowd's in the way. I hope that we can be a community that makes a seat at the table for those people. Who says, come. Come look, here's Jesus. Let's all look at him. Let's all be with him together. You see, Jesus comes into Jericho once more. He's breaking down walls all over again. Because as Jesus comes by, he looks, and Jesus does see Zacchaeus. He sees him. And what does he say? Hey, come down from there. I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to you, right? Just like all of those dwarves knocking on Bilbo's front door, Jesus comes knocking on Zacchaeus' door and says, hey, I'm having dinner with you. Let's do this, right? I'm coming to your house. And what happens next seems to all happen very quickly, right? Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. So Zacchaeus comes down at once, and, and he welcomes him gladly. Someone's actually seen me, right? The people start grumbling, but then Zacchaeus stands up, and he says to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if there's anyone who I've cheated, remember, he's a tax collector. If there's anyone that I have cheated, I'm going to pay them back four times that amount. And Jesus says to him, and this is, I think, a summary of all that has just happened. Jesus says to him, today, salvation has come to this house. When Jesus says this, he shows us several things about salvation. I just want to point out three. Salvation has come to this house today. What does he mean? What is salvation? What does Jesus show us here? 
Well, when he says salvation has come to this house today, what did he say just a few verses earlier? In verse 5, Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. So what is salvation? Or better, who is salvation? Salvation is Jesus. Jesus is the one who has come to Zacchaeus' house. And when Jesus arrives, he says, salvation has come to this house. Remember, I mentioned Jesus' name in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is translated the salvation of God. God saves is what that means. Truly, the salvation of God has come to Zacchaeus' house. And so salvation looks like welcoming Jesus with joy, right? That's the first thing Zacchaeus does. He comes down and he welcomes him gladly. Salvation looks like welcoming Jesus with joy. What does it look like for us to welcome Jesus in our life? To make space to meet Jesus. To turn to him in prayer. To sit before him in silence. To search for him in scripture. What does it look like to welcome Jesus into our lives with joy? Because when we do that, salvation has come to this house. But there's more, right? There's more that happens. In verse 6, Zacchaeus comes down and welcomes Jesus gladly. But then in in verse 8, Zacchaeus stands up and says to the Lord, Look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay him back four times that amount. This is another picture of salvation, right? Salvation is welcoming Jesus with joy, but salvation doesn't stop there. Salvation is also welcoming others with justice and with peace. With justice and with peace, right? That's exactly what we see here. Zacchaeus looks out and sees those who are poor, those who have need. He sees that there is this injustice. He has so much. They have so little. And and in, in Scripture, that word justice does not mean usually what we mean by it, which is punishing guilty people. In Scripture, the word justice most of the time means protecting vulnerable people. Justice is feeding the hungry. Justice is caring for widows. Justice is welcoming strangers, right? This is all over the Old Testament, and it's all over in what Jesus says. And so salvation is not just welcoming Jesus with joy, it's welcoming others, with justice, saying, where are the things that are wrong in the world, and how can they be made right? Where are the vulnerable people, and how might we extend welcome and protection to them? He welcomes others with justice. He also welcomes others with peace. He says, who are those who I have wronged? Is there anyone that I have cheated? Because if so, I want to make it right. I want to make peace, right? And this is something we pray for every week as we come together, 
Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, right? It's the sense of, of things being forgiven and asking for forgiveness. Zacchaeus realizes he has some debts that he needs to pay. He's wronged some people and he needs to make that right. See, salvation is not just welcoming Jesus with joy. It's welcoming others with justice and with peace. This is what salvation is. And perhaps one of the most significant things that Jesus tells us and shows us about salvation is that very first word that he says. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation is not something that we're waiting for someday, some far-off future in the clouds. Salvation is today. Salvation is about life, eternal life, and life means living. Living with God. Living with Jesus. Living with others. You see, I, I love that moment in that scene that we watched towards the very end when he opens the door and all those people, you know, all those dwarves come tumbling in. And then right behind them is Gandalf, right? And he sort of comes down and Bilbo just goes, ah, Gandalf. You see, you don't welcome Gandalf without welcoming all the people that Gandalf comes with. You don't welcome Jesus without welcoming all the people that Jesus comes with. Very likely when Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, he brought all his disciples with him. It probably was not that different than the hobbit scene that we watched. One disciple after another after another, and then, oh, Jesus, hi. Welcome, right? Right? When we welcome Jesus, we welcome others. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so all of this story culminates in verse 10, where Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the second time we've heard Jesus say something like this in the Gospel of Luke. A few chapters before, in chapter 7, Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Right? Jesus gives these purpose statements. He came to seek and save the lost. How did he do that? By eating and drinking with them. Jesus came to seek and save the lost by going to the table. This is how he builds his kingdom. This is how he restores the world. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Will we seek him? Will we be found by him? Will we find him in the lives of others who we encounter every day? May it be so. Amen.